Chapter 3 of the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Good report of the Roman Church, Paul not ashamed of the Gospel. Romans 1, 8-17. He has blessed the Roman Christians in the name of the Lord. Now he hastens to tell them how he blesses God for them, and how full his heart is of them. The gospel is warm all through with life and love. This great message of doctrine and precept is poured from a fountain full of personal affection. Verse 8. Now first I thank my God through Jesus Christ about you all. It is his delight to give thanks for all the good he knows of in his brethren. Seven of his epistles open with such thanksgivings, which at once convey the commendations which love rejoices to give wherever possible and trace all spiritual virtue straight to its source, the Lord. Not only here to the Lord, but to my God, a phrase used in the New Testament only by St. Paul, except that one utterance of Eli, Eli, by his dying Saviour. It is the expression of an indescribable appropriation and reverent intimacy. The believer grudges his God to none. He rejoices with great joy over every soul that finds its wealth in him. But at the centre of all joy and love is this, my God, Christ Jesus, my Lord, who loved me and gave himself for me. Is it selfish? Nay, it is the language of a personality where Christ has dethroned self in his own favour, but in which therefore reigns now the highest happiness, the happiness which animates and maintains a self-forgetful love of all. And this holy intimacy, with its action in thanks and petition, is all the while through Jesus Christ, the mediator and brother. The man knows God as my God and deals with him as such, never out of that beloved Son who is equally one with the believer and with the Father, no alien medium but the living point of unity. What moves his thanksgivings? Because your faith is spoken of, more literally is carried as tidings over the whole world. Go where he will, in Asia, in Macedonia, in Achaia, in Illyricum, he meets believing strangers from Rome, with spiritual news from the capital, announcing with a glad solemnity that at the great centre of this world the things eternal are proving their power, and that the Roman mission is remarkable for its strength and simplicity of faith, its humble reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ, and loving allegiance to him. Such news, wafted from point to point of that early Christendom, was frequent then. We see another beautiful example of it when he tells the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8-10, how everywhere in his Greek tour he found the news of their conversion running in advance of him to greet him at each arrival. What special importance would such intelligence bear when it was good news from Rome? Still in our day, over the world of missions, similar tidings travel. Only a few years ago, the saints of Indian Tinnevelli heard of the distress of their brethren of African Uganda and sent with loving eagerness to their necessity. Only last year, 1892, an English visitor to the missions of Labrador found the disciples of the Moravian brethren there full of the wonders of grace manifested in those same African believers. This constant good tidings from the city makes him the more glad because of its correspondence with his incessant thought, prayer, and yearning over them. Verse 9. For God is my record, my witness of this, the God whom I serve, 
at once so the greek la trevo implies with adoration and obedience in my spirit in the gospel of his son the four gives the connection we have just indicated he rejoices to hear of their faith for the lord knows how much they are in his prayers the divine witness is the more instinctively appealed to because these thoughts and prayers are for a mission church and the relations between st paul and his god are above all missionary relations he serves them in the gospel of his son the gospel of the god who is known and believed in his christ he serves him in the gospel that is in the propagation of it so he often means where he speaks of the gospel take for example verse one above fifteen verse sixteen and nineteen below philippians one five twelve philippians chapter one verse five and twelve chapter two verse twenty two he serves him in that great branch of ministry in his spirit with his whole love will and mind working in communion with his lord and now to this eternal friend and witness he appeals to seal his assurance of incessant intercessions for them how without ceasing as a habit constantly in action i make mention of you calling them up by name specifying before the father rome and aquila and andronicus and junius and persis and mary and the whole circle personally known or not in my prayers literally on occasion of my prayers whenever he found himself at prayer statedly or as it were casually remembering and beseeching the prayers of st paul are a study by themselves see his own accounts of them to the corinthians the ephesians the philippians the colossians the thessalonians and philemon observe their topic it is almost always the growth of grace in the saints to their master's glory observe now still more their manner the frequency the diligence the resolution which grapples wrestles with the difficulties of prayer so that in colossians two one he calls his prayer simply a great wrestling learn here how to deal with god for those for whom you work shepherd of souls messenger of the word christian man or woman who in any way are called to help other hearts in christ verse ten in this case his prayers have a very definite direction he is requesting if somehow now at length my way shall be opened in the will of god to come to you it is a quite simple quite natural petition his inward harmony with the lord's will never excludes the formation and expression of such requests with the reverent if of submissive reserve the indifference of mystic pietism which at least discourages articulate contingent petitions is unknown to the apostles in everything with thanksgiving they make their requests known unto god and they find such expression harmonized in a holy experience with a profound rest within this will this sweet beloved will of god little did he here foresee how his way would be opened that it would lie through the tumult in the temple the prisons of jerusalem and caesarea and the cyclone of the adrian sea he had in view a missionary journey to spain in which rome was to be taken by the way so god grants prayer but in his love makes ways and times his own verse eleven his heart yearns for the roman visit we may almost render the greek of the next clause for i am homesick for a sight of you he uses the word by which elsewhere he describes philippian epaphroditus's longing to be back at philippi philippians two twenty six and again his own longing to see the son of his heart timotheus to timothy one four 
such is the gospel that its family affection throws the light of home on even unknown regions where dwell the brethren in this case the longing love however has a purpose most practical that i may impart to you some spiritual gift of grace with a view to your establishment the word rendered gift of grace charisma is used in some places see especially one corinthians twelve verses four nine twenty eight thirty and thirty one with a certain special reference to the mysterious tongues interpretations and prophecies given in the primeval churches and we gather from the acts and the epistles that these grants were not ordinarily made where an apostle was not there to lay on his hands but it is not likely that this is the import of the present passage elsewhere in the epistle the word charisma is used with its largest and deepest reference god's gift of blessing in christ here then so we take it he means that he pines to convey to them as his lord's messenger some new development of spiritual light and joy to expound the way to them more perfectly to open up to them such fuller and deeper insights into the riches of christ that they better using their possession in the lord might as it were gain new possessions in him and might stand more boldly on the glorious certainties they held and this was to be done ministerially not magisterially for he goes on to say that the longed-for visit would be his gain as well as theirs verse twelve that is with a view to my concurrent encouragement among you by our mutual faith yours and mine together shall we call this a sentence of fine tact beautifully conciliatory and endearing yes but it is also perfectly sincere true tact is only the skill of sympathetic love not the less genuine in its thought because that thought seeks to please and win he is glad to show himself as his disciple's brotherly friend but then he first is such and enjoys the character and has continually found and felt his own soul made glad and strong by the witness to the lord which far less gifted believers bore as he and they talked together does not every true teacher know this in his own experience if we are not merely lecturers on christianity but witnesses for christ we know what it is to hail with deep thanksgivings the encouragement we have had from the lips of those who perhaps believed long after we did and have been far less advantaged outwardly than we have been we have known and blessed the encouragement carried to us by little believing children and young men in their first faith and poor old people on their comfortless beds ignorant in this world illuminated in the lord mutual faith the pregnant phrase of the apostle faith residing in each of both parties and owned by each to the other is a mighty power for christian encouragement still verse thirteen but i would not have you ignorant brethren this is a characteristic term of expression with him he delights in confidence and information and not least about his own plans bearing on his friends that i often purposed or better in our english idiom have purposed to come to you that i have been hindered up till now that i might have some fruit among you too as actually among the other nations he cannot help giving more and yet more intimation of his loving gravitation towards them nor yet of his gracious avarice for fruit result harvest and vintage for christ in the way of helping on romans as well as asiatics and macedonians and archaeans to live a fuller life in him this we may infer from the whole epistle would be the chief kind of fruit in his view at rome but not this only for we shall see him at once go on to anticipate an evangelistic work at rome a speaking of the gospel message 
where there would be a temptation to be ashamed of it edification of believers may be his main aim but conversion of pagan souls to god cannot possibly be disassociated from it in passing we see with instruction that st paul made many plans which came to nothing he tells us this here without apology or misgiving he claims accordingly no such practical omniscience actual or possible as would make his resolutions and forecasts infallible tacitly at least he wrote if the lord will across them all unless indeed there came a case where as when he was guided out of asia to macedonia acts sixteen six to ten direct intimation was given him abnormal supernatural quite ab extra that such and not such was to be his path verse fourteen but now he is not only homesick for rome with a yearning love he feels his obligation to rome with a wakeful conscience alike to greeks and to barbarians to wise men and to unthinking i am in debt mankind is on his heart in the sorts and differences of its culture on the one hand were the greeks that is to say in the then popular meaning of the word people possessed of what we now call classical civilization greek and roman an inner circle of these were the wise the literati the readers writers thinkers in the curriculum of those literatures and philosophies on the other hand were the barbarians the tongues and tribes outside the hellenic pale pisidian pamphylian galatian illyrian and we know not who besides and then among them or anywhere the unthinking the numberless masses whom the educated world would despise or forget as utterly untrained in the schools unversed in the great topics of man and the world the people of the field the market and the kitchen to the apostle because to his lord all these were now impartially his claimants his creditors he owed them the gospel which had been trusted to him for them naturally his will might be repelled alike by the frown or smile of the greek and by the coarse earthliness of the barbarian but supernaturally in christ he loved both and scrupulously remembered his duty to both such is the true missionary spirit still in whatever region under whatever conditions the christian man and the christian church delivered from the world is yet its debtor woe is to him to it if that debt is not paid if that gospel is hidden in a napkin verse fifteen thus he is ready and more than ready to pay his debt to rome so to render literally what relates to me is eager to you too to the men in rome to preach the gospel what relates to me there is an emphasis on me as if to say that the hindrance whatever it is is not in him but around him the doors have been shut but the man stands behind them in act to pass in when he may his eagerness is no light-heartedness no carelessness of when or where this wonderful missionary is too sensitive to facts and ideas too rich in imagination not to feel the peculiar nay the awful greatness of a summons to rome he understands culture too well not to feel its possible obstacles he has seen too much of both the real grandeur and the harsh force of the imperial power in its extension not to feel a genuine awe as he thinks of meeting that power at its gigantic centre there is that in him which fears rome but he is therefore the very man to go there for he understands the magnitude of the occasion and he will the more deeply retire upon his lord for peace and power verses sixteen and seventeen thus with appointed fitness he tells himself and his friends just here that he is not ashamed of the gospel for i am not ashamed 
I am ready even for Rome, for this terrible Rome. I have a message which, though Rome looks as if she must despise it, I know it is not to be despised. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power to salvation, for every one who believes, alike for Jew first and for Greek. For God's righteousness is in it unveiled from faith on to faith, as it stands written, but the just man on faith shall live. These words give out the great theme of the epistle. The epistle, therefore, is infinitely the best commentary on them, as we follow out its argument and hear its message. Here it shall suffice us to note only a point or two, and so pass on. First, we recollect that this gospel, this glad tidings, is in its essence Jesus Christ. It is supremely he, not it, person, not theory, or rather it is authentic and eternal theory in vital and eternal connection everywhere with a person. As such, it is truly power in a sense as profoundly natural as it is divine. It is power not only in the cogency of perfect principle, but in the energy of an eternal life, an almighty will, an infinite love. Then we observe that this message of power, which is, in its burden, the Christ of God, unfolds first at its foundation, in its front, the righteousness of God, not first his love, but his righteousness. Seven times elsewhere in the epistle comes this phrase, rich materials for ascertaining its meaning in the spiritual dialect of St. Paul. Out of these passages, chapter 3, verse 26, gives us the key. There the righteousness of God, seen as it were in action, ascertained by its effects, is that which secures that he shall be just and the justifier of the man who belongs to faith in Jesus. It is that which makes wonderfully possible the mighty paradox that the Holy One, eternally truthful, eternally rightful, infinitely law-abiding in his jealousy for that law which is in fact his nature, expressing itself in precept, nevertheless can and does say to man in his guilt and forfeit, I, thy judge, lawfully acquit thee, lawfully accept thee, lawfully embrace thee. In such a context we need not fear to explain this great phrase, for this its first occurrence to mean the acceptance accorded by the holy judge to sinful man. Thus it stands practically equivalent to God's way of justifying the ungodly, his method for liberating his love while he magnifies his law. In effect, not as a translation but as an explanation, God's righteousness is God's justification. Then again we note the emphasis and the repetition here of the thought of faith, to every one that believeth, from faith on to faith, the just man on faith shall live. Here, if anywhere, we shall find ample commentary in the epistle. Only let us remember from the first that in the Roman epistle, as everywhere in the New Testament, we shall see faith used in its natural and human sense. We shall find that it means personal reliance. Fides est fiducia, faith is trust, say the masters of Reformation theology. Refelitor inanis hereticorum fiducia, we refute the heretic's empty trust, says the Council of Trent against them but in vain. Faith is trust. It is in this sense that our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels invariably uses the word, for this is its human sense, its sense in the street and market, and the Lord, the man of men, uses the dialect of his race. Faith, infinitely wonderful and mysterious from some points of view, is the simplest thing in the world from others. That sinners, conscious of their guilt, should be brought so to see their judge's heart as to take his word of peace to mean what it says, is miracle. But that they should trust his word, having seen his heart, is nature, illuminated and led by grace, but nature still. The faith of Jesus Christ and the apostles is trust. 
it is not a faculty for mystical intuitions it is our taking the trustworthy at his word it is the opening of a mendicant hand to receive the gold of heaven the opening of dying lips to receive the water of life it is that which makes a void place for jesus christ to fill that he may be man's merit man's peace man's power hence the overwhelming prominence of faith in the gospel it is the correlative of the overwhelming the absolute prominence of jesus christ christ is all faith is man's acceptance of him as such justification by faith is not acceptance because faith is a valuable thing a merit a recommendation a virtue it is acceptance because of jesus christ whom man dropping all other hopes receives it is let us repeat it the sinner's empty hand and parted lips it has absolutely nothing to do with earning the gift of god the water and the bread of god it has all to do with taking it this we shall see open out before us as we proceed so the gospel unveils god's righteousness it draws the curtains from his glorious secret and as each fold is lifted the glad beholder looks on from faith to faith he finds that this reliance is to be his part first last midst and without end he takes jesus christ by faith he holds him by faith he uses him by faith he lives he dies in him by faith that is to say always by him by him received held used then lastly we mark the quotation from the prophet who for the apostle is the organ of the holy ghost what habakkuk wrote is for paul what god says god's word the prophet as we refer to his brief pages manifestly finds his occasion and his first significance in the then state of his country and his people if we please we may explain the words as a patriot's contribution to the politics of jerusalem and pass on but if so we pass on upon a road unknown to our lord and his apostles to him to them the prophecies had more in them than the prophets knew and habakkuk's appeal to judah to retain the lord jehovah among them in all his peace and power by trusting him is known by st paul to be for all time an oracle about the work of faith so he sees it in a message straight to the soul which asks how if christ is god's righteousness shall i a sinner win christ for me wouldst thou indeed be just with god right with him as judge accepted by the holy one take his son in the empty arms of mere trust and he is thine for this need and for all i am not ashamed of the gospel so the apostle affirms as he looks toward rome what is it about this gospel of god and of his son which gives occasion for such a word why do we find not here only but elsewhere in the new testament this contemplated possibility that the christian may be ashamed of his creed and of his lord whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words of him shall the son of man be ashamed luke nine twenty six be not thou ashamed of the testimony of our lord nevertheless i am not ashamed two timothy one eight and twelve this is paradoxical as we come to think upon it there is much about the purity of the gospel which might occasion and does too often occasion an awe and dread of it seemingly unreasonable there is much about its attendant mysteries which might seem to excuse an attitude however mistaken of reverent suspense but what is there about this revelation of the heart of eternal love this record of a life equally divine and human of a death as majestic as it is infinitely pathetic and then of a resurrection out of death to occasion shame why in view of this 
should man be shy to avow his faith and to let it be known that this is all in all to him his life his peace his strength his surpassing interest and occupation more than one analysis of the phenomenon which we all know to be fact may be suggested but for our part we believe that the true solution lies near the words sin pardon self-surrender the gospel reveals the eternal love but under conditions which remind man that he has done his worst to forfeit it it tells him of a peace and strength sublime and heavenly but it asks him in order to receive them to kneel down in the dust and take them unmerited for nothing and it reminds them that he thus delivered and endowed is by the same act the property of his deliverer that not only the highest benefit of his nature is secured by his giving himself over to god but the most inexorable obligation lies on him to do so he is not his own but bought with a price such views of the actual relation between man and god even when attended as they are in the gospel with such indications of man's true greatness as are found nowhere else are deeply repellent to the soul that has not yet seen itself and god in the light of truth and the human being who has got that sight and has submitted himself indeed yet the moment he looks outside the blessed shrine of his own union with his lord is tempted to be reticent about a creed which he knows once repelled and angered him well did paul remember his old hatred and contempt and he felt the temptations of that memory when he presented christ either to the pharisee or to the stoic and now particularly when he thought of bearing witness of him at rome acts twenty three verse eleven imperial overwhelming rome but then he looked again from them to jesus christ and the temptation was beneath his feet and the gospel everywhere was upon his lips End of chapter 3